We get some lights up here, guys. Good morning. <laughs> it's good to see you all this morning. We're all spread out all over the place, but I'm sure glad you're here. Thank you for coming. I've got a couple quick announcements I want to go over before we get into the message today. Uh, this uh, October, Saturday, October 31st, we're going to have a drive through family fest. Basically, we're going to have people drive through their cars with their children. We're going to give them candy. We're asking uh, some of you to decorate the trunks or the back ends of your car, stand out there with masks and gloves on, of course, and uh, just greet the children as they come through, give them an option to get out and to, to get some candy. Uh, it's kind of taking place of our, our big event that we've had so many years, the Hallelujah Night. Uh, it's one of the biggest things we do every year. I think we had 14, 1,500 people come through the doors last year. This will obviously be a toned down version, but we, did, we didn't want to just not have anything. We wanted to be able to offer something for the kids, let them know that we are still around. So if you'd like to donate some candy to the cause, we have some containers out in the foyer today, and we'll also have them next Sunday. If you'd like to give some money towards the candy, you can just put on one of your giving envelopes, however, whatever amount you want to designate to that. And if you'd like to uh, have your car decorated and be a part of the night, uh, you can go online to our church website and sign up. There's also some bulletins out at the information desk that has information on how you can do that. We'd love to see you be a part of that as we try to bless the kids in our community. Uh, last uh, several months, I've been talking about nominations if you should want to serve on our church board. I first of all told you if that's something you would consider doing to make it a matter of prayer. And then we identified uh, who our um, nominating committee were. These are the people that you go to if either you are interested in running for a position on the board or if you want to nominate someone. Again, if you nominate someone, make sure that that individual is in agreement that they would like to run for the board. You don't just give somebody's name if they're not interested, so find that out. But you can go to one of these people, and we have to do this by the end of the month. According to our bylaws, uh, the nominating committee's uh, members are myself, uh, Dave Ledford, Scott Miller, Marilyn Westbrook, uh, Judy Robinson and Daryl Plemons. So if you can go to one of those people, they will take the information down. We'll get the process going. This election doesn't take place until March of next year. But according to our bylaws, we have to uh, move on these, these uh, things and, and get them in line for then. So keep that in mind. Uh, and lastly, and I don't mention this enough, uh, since COVID and since all the rules and regulations have been put on us, we don't receive tithes and offerings during our, our, our worship services anymore for obvious reasons. So I just wanted to remind you, uh, a lot of people give online, some people text give, uh, some people drop by the church. We have two dispensers in the, uh, in the foyer on the wall with the big signs that go from floor to ceiling. You can drop your tithes and offering in there just in case you were wondering. But everybody keeps reminding you, you've got to tell people that. So I'm trying to get better at that. But just to let you know, we are still receiving tithes and offerings. And I want to thank you for your faithfulness. You have been nothing but incredible during this entire time of COVID. It's just been a sight to see. And that is a testament to God's faithfulness, but it's also a testament to your faithfulness to God. And I thank you all so very, very much. You know, it's interesting, whenever you come to the end of something, whether it be a project or a relationship, or when you come to the end of your life, that there are usually final words that are spoken. It seems that we as human beings have this need to, to express our final thoughts and our final sentiments. And these words are always kind of a, of a compilation or they are a sum total of the deep beliefs that we've held throughout our lifetime. And today, as we are completing our series from the book of Colossians that we have titled Made for More, the Apostle Paul is coming to the end of his letter. It's a letter that he has painstakingly written from within the walls of a prison to the church in Colossae and he has some final words that he wants to share with them. And I don't know about you, but I've really enjoyed going through this book as we have deciphered the different verses and applied the truths found within to our own Christian and personal daily lives. But this text that we are going to study today, Colossians 4, verses 2 through 6, is, is pretty much the, the final content piece of Paul's letter. The rest of the letter, verses 7 through 18, involves some final greetings and, and some personal, ma personal messages and that I covered a little bit last week at the end of my message. But for the most part, those things would be things that all of us would put behind a PS if we were, we were writing a letter to someone. 
But as far as any real substantial content saying these are my final words, they're going to be unveiled to us in this small section of pass, this small passage of scripture that we're going to cover this morning. So let's look at Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 through 6, and we will read Paul's final words to the Colossian church. He says, devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. And pray for us too that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. In Paul's, in Paul's final words written in this letter, he says, I have two things that I am passionate about that weigh heavily on my heart. First of all, one is prayer. The other thing is uh, spreading the gospel message of Jesus Christ to those who are yet to know him. And he begins in Colossians 4.2 by saying this, devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. Now, throughout this series, I have challenged you to memorize some of the key scriptures found in this particular book. And I would say that this is a scripture that you certainly should not just memorize for your daily walk, but you should apply it to your life. You should devote yourself to prayer. And I want to explain to you what the phrase means. And what I mean by that is I have done an extensive study from the original Greek text, and I want you to listen to me clearly because this is, this, is, this is really important. It means devote yourself to prayer. It's as simple as that. There's no, nothing to add to it or take away. When he says devote yourself to prayer, that's what he means. It means pray a lot. It means pray when you're alone, pray when you're at church, pray when you're in a small group. It means pray morning prayers and mealtime prayers and daytime prayers. It means to pray fervently, to pray expectantly, to, to pray unselfconsciously, pray when you're up, pray when you're down, Pray when you're worried, pray when you're sick or when you are burdened or when you're brokenhearted, pray when you are soaring and, and setting new records, pray when you're busy, pray when you're bored, pray before the game, during the game, and after the game. It means to pray in the spirit. He means to pray. That's what Paul means. It was Dallas Willard that wrote these words that I appreciate. The more we pray, the more we think to pray. In other words, frequency of, the frequency of prayers builds up a kind of momentum uh, that eventually puts us to the condition that Paul talks about in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 when he says to pray without ceasing. Now I have to admit, when I became a Christian and I first heard that, that saying, I, I'm thinking, you know, how, you got to be kidding me. How can that be? But some of you know. Those of you who have prayed throughout the course of your Christian life and you have devoted yourself to prayer, you really do come to a place where you can actually hold an ongoing dialogue between you and God throughout the course of your day. And it becomes almost like breathing. And it just feels so natural that if you weren't carrying on that kind of daily dialogue with God throughout your day, you would feel like that there was something wrong. When you understand the nature of being devoted to God in prayer, it's like walking around with a headset on, and one of the ears of that headset is dialed in to the voice of God. Sometimes when you're driving or when you're working or you're going from one place to the other, you can have those kind of ongoing conversations and dialogue with God. God, I am so glad that you are a part of my life. I thank you for your faithfulness to me and to my family. I thank you for your, your presence of the Spirit of God that indwells me. What I'm facing today may be a difficult day, but I know I'm not going to face it alone. I'm going to face it with you by my side. This is what it means being devoted to prayer, that you carry on an ongoing dialogue between you and God during the course of your day. But let's be clear about this statement, devote yourself to prayer, because Jesus also taught in, in Matthew 6, 6 in his Sermon on the Mount, he said, but when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. He says, go into your room, shut the door, and have a more formalized, unrushed, un a very focused time of prayer. Now, some people spend more time praying in their prayer closet 
while other people have this ongoing dialogue between them and God throughout the day. But the point is, both of them are essentially important to your Christian journey. If all you do is learn the discipline of going into the room and having a special prayer time, then when you walk out of their prayer closet, you might not go through your day with that headset on, with your prayer, and your prayer life might be missing something. On the other hand, if you wear that headset and you simply do those little catch prayers all day, you're going to miss out on something very important. You're going to miss out on the kind of prayer that, that focuses on an unrushed kind of fellowship with God where you go deeper, where you, you open yourself up to the activity of God in your life to help you with correction and direction on where you should go. So as you think about devoting yourself to prayer, can you see how devotion to prayer occurs differently for different people? But the important thing is that we must make prayer a part of our spiritual life. I once heard a statement that makes complete sense to me. When I work, I work. But when I pray, God works. That's a great statement. So the question becomes, whose work is it that you want to be applied to what you're doing today? I would much rather have God working on my behalf than my own strength. You see, when I work, I am capable of working very hard. But when I pray, the God of the universe is working on my behalf. And it's his kind of work that ultimately gives me the results that I desperately need. So devote yourselves to prayer. That's the first part of Paul's words here. But then he moves into the second half of what he's trying to say regarding prayer. He says in verse three, pray for us too. And that us, of course, means his inner circle of friends who are working to build the early New Testament church. And what follows in verses three through six are phrases to challenge us in reaching those who are lost. It's a challenge for all of us to be mindful of helping our acquaintances and our friends and our family members and our coworkers to come to a, an understanding and a faith relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And before I dig into the following scriptures, I wanna say a few things about the Christian life that is never said but need to be said. Being a Christian has some built-in tension to it. It requires balance. Let me explain to you what I mean because this will set the tone of the rest of what we're going to talk about here this morning. The more mature I grow as a Christian, the more I realize that there is a delicate balance in living the Christian life. For example, if I were to forsake all of you, never associate with Christians again in an effort to evangelize the lost, that would be a negative thing for my personal life. Why? Because I need the fellowship of the believers to strengthen and to encourage me. It's throughout the Bible. On the other hand, if I hang out only with Christians and I have no non-Christian friends at all, then I am forsaking, therefore, the great commission that was given to you and I by Jesus before he ascended to heaven to go out and to make disciples of all men. And that tension that I'm talking about will, will sadly come from fellow believers as they look down their nose at you for hanging around with the wrong crowd. When you think about it, Jesus, he spent a lot of time with non-believers. It was just the way he did things. It's the way he healed and loved and saved people. And this created tension with the religious leaders of that day. So Jesus lived with tension. I mean, consider this. Jesus was a comforter, but he was also a prophet and prophets aren't often comforters. Jesus was the epitome of one who comforted the afflicted, and yet he afflicted the comfortable as well. Jesus loved tradition, but he also undermined tradition at times, and that, again, created great tension between him and the religious leaders. Jesus was tender, but Jesus also knew how to be tough when needed. Jesus was in the world, but he was not of the world. So to me, tension seems to be a necessary part of the Christian walk due to the nature of what Christ has called us to do and what he has asked us to become. And the trick, I believe, is for us to have balance in our life. There's a great tension trying to be in the world, but not of the world. And I believe you all understand what I'm trying to say. Let me share a few scriptures to help make my point. 
Jesus said in John 17, 11, I will remain in the world no longer, but they, speaking of us, are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. Then he goes down to verse 14 and 15. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world anymore than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. In this prayer of Jesus, we clearly see that we are in the world, but we are not of the world. 2 Corinthians 5.20 tells us we are therefore Christ's ambassadors. Do you know what an ambassador is? An An ambassador is a citizen of one country living in another country as they are representing their homeland. And this verse reminds us that as Christians, we are citizens of another place. Heaven is our home. We are ambassadors who should be representing our homeland while living in this strange land during the 70, 80, 90, 100 years that we're given to live on this land. And while we're doing so, it is our job to get to know others. I want to read an example to you about this from Paul himself, found in Acts chapter 17, verses 16 through 23. It'll be up on the screen behind me. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up at the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. And then Paul went on and he proceeded to preach the gospel. But did you see what he did here? He, he walked among the people, he talked with them, he saw their idols, he, he learned a little bit about their gods, and then he used all those things as a springboard in which to preach the gospel message that they desperately needed to hear. And these verses show us a little bit of that tension that I'm talking about, that we are indeed in to be in the world. Jesus never called us out of the world, and furthermore, he never set an example for us leaving this world behind. The only way we leave this earth behind is when we die or when he raptures us, whichever one of those comes first. But if you look at Jesus' life, you see some pretty vivid examples of how Jesus lived in the world. His first miracle was turning water into wine at a wedding reception. Many of the people that Jesus hung out with were great sinners. And as I said earlier, Jesus undermined some religious laws and traditions that had been handed down for centuries, trying to straighten their thinking out. Jesus was definitely in the world but he was not of the world, absolutely not. Here's a few other verses to consider. First John 2, 15 through 17. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away but whoever does the will of God lives forever. Not being of the world simply means not loving the world. 1 Peter 2, 11 through 12. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles, he's referring to us, to abstain from sinful desires, which, wages, which wage war against your soul. 
live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. We are all foreigners. We are all exiles. And a healthy outlook is to realize that this world is not our home. But look at what Peter says in verse 12 about the time that we do live here. He says, live such good lives among the pagans. We are to live among the world, or as Peter says, among the pagans, pagans being defined as people who do not know God. But sadly, what has happened in the the modern day church is that we have withdrawn from those people who don't know Christ. We've done a really pretty good job at disengaging from them. Some redeemed men and women of God have actually copped an attitude whereby they look down upon those who are lost. Instead of caring about their eternal soul and wanting them to receive salvation. Sadly, many Christians act like they're a part of some kind of an exclusive club. It's a club that shakes its head in disbelief at the condition that some people are in, completely forgetting that they were in that condition themselves at one time. It's a a club where members seem to seemingly care more about their own spiritual well-being and their continued blessings coming down from heaven on them and their family instead of others. It's a club that says, hey, praise Jesus, I'm in. But as for you, you might be on your own. And so often we find that our only friends are Christians. And we're not living among the lost at all. There are none of them in our lives. But Peter says we are to live among the lost. So Jesus, and Jesus did as well, and, and so does Paul. So let's go back to Colossians 4, 3, and let's see what Paul is getting at here. He says, and pray for us too, that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ. Paul shows us here that any opportunity that we have for ministry is given because God opened the door for his message to be proclaimed. If we are going to be in but not of the world, then you and I have to seize every opportunity that is afforded to us to proclaim the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Remember now, Paul is writing this letter from within a prison, and he is asking the Colossian church to open doors for him while he's in prison. It's interesting to me that that Paul is looking for opportunities right where he is. Paul was considered a high-value prisoner, and often in Rome, a high-value prisoner was not just put into a cell, but he was also chained to a Roman soldier, a centurion. It's been said that Paul did some of his best work while he was chained in prison. And I can only imagine how relentlessly Paul shared the gospel message of Jesus Christ with these soldiers that had no other option but to sit there next to him. You see, many people think You've got to go outside of your normal daily routines in order to share Jesus and tell others about what he's done in your life. But I do not think that that is the case at all. In Matthew 28, 18, Jesus gave some final instructions. You may recognize this as the Great Commission. It says, then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. When Jesus says, go and make disciples, what he's saying is this, you have already established a sphere of influence in your own life, where you work, where you, where you play, where you rest, where you interact, where you drive your car. It is within those places, through personal interactions, where we are to make disciples. So go out and make disciples within your sphere of influence. You don't have to go outside of what you're already doing. We are to make disciples as we go about doing what we go about doing every day. And just like Paul, we need to pray that he will open doors for us to share our faith. And I warn you, if you pray to God to give you open doors, he will open them for you. And when you walk through that door and you allow yourself to be used by God to share the greatest message of hope that anybody could ever hear, you will never be the same again. 
I think what Paul is saying to the church in Colossae as well as to High Point Assembly in 2020 is simple. He's saying, look, I am not new at this evangelism thing. I've been out trying to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ, the risen Savior, in many different places, and I have taken beatings for it, and I have nearly lost my life. But as I'm nearing the end of my life, I am praying for you, that God, I'm praying that you would pray that God would open doors for us. Because Paul knows that you cannot force the message of Christianity through closed doors. You cannot force people to receive the message of the cross. You cannot cram Christ through doors that are locked up tight. So at this stage in his life, Paul says, I want all of you to pray that God would open these doors for us, not just doors, but open up their hearts and their minds and their spirits, because without that, we're dead in the water. We can't spread this life-changing message we can't force it through closed doors. God's going to have to open up somebody's heart and somebody's mind and somebody's spirit so that we can present the message and so that that message can, in fact, be received. Jesus said in John 6, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up at that last day. Paul is simply acknowledging that prayer must precede any and all evangelistic efforts, period. Prayer has to be a part of that. The two are inexplicably bound together. Try saying that word three times really fast. If you ever hope to lead people to Jesus Christ, you gotta be a person who is devoted to prayer. You've gotta pray for those open doors. I think sometimes we don't pray for open doors because quite frankly, we're afraid. We'll talk a little bit maybe more about that in the future, a little bit today. So do you pray for open doors? Do you ever ask God to open the doors in the workplace or with a group of people that you hang around with? I realize there's not been a lot of hanging around going on over the last nine months, but we're talking about now and we're also talking about when things before and when they get back to normal. Because, because here's the deal, unless God goes before you, Unless God makes a way, unless God softens a heart or, or readies a spirit, as I said, you can't force Christianity on anybody. And I want to challenge all of you this morning to pray those kinds of prayers. In fact, I wonder what would happen here at High Point. I wonder what would happen to Red Bluff, California, if all of us in this church and all of us in the churches throughout this community fervently prayed that God would open a door for us every single day. Imagine what would happen to this church, the growth of this church, as we led, each one of us, someone to Christ. We would double in size, we would quadruple, it would be, it would be growth that we could never imagine. We'd have to have multiple services. We'd probably have to have Friday night services, Saturday services, and Sunday to take everything in if we followed the Great Commission. Imagine the landscape of our community, how it would change. Is all of a sudden, instead of 20% of this community being Christians and 80% being lost, if that thing got reversed, what would Red Bluff, California look like? I can guarantee you it would look totally different than it does today. And listen, I know that this is an ongoing theme of my teaching and preaching. Often you'll even hear me pray about opening doors at, the, at my closing prayer at the end of every service. Because it is something that we have been commanded to do, winning others to Christ. When we see how many lost there are in this community, the only way many of them will ever find Christ is through you and me. Because most of them will never come through the doors of this church or any church for that matter. And therefore, the only Jesus that they will ever see out there is you and me. And when they recognize Christ in you, they usually start asking questions. And that's when you know that the Lord has been working on the heart of that person, softening their heart, and that door has been open for you, and you need to be prepared to walk through it. And I find it only fitting that as we've gone through this entire book of the Bible, and all that we've learned in Colossians, that Paul's final words would lead us to this obvious conclusion. As we've been talking about our identity in Christ, it must also include us sharing what Christ has done for us with other people. This new identity of being a follower of Jesus Christ, this new way of living, of being a Christian, must include each of us 
being ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If we all took this command seriously, there wouldn't be enough churches in this city to hold the people who would come to know him. Well, then Paul moves on. While speaking about an open door, he follows in verse four by saying, pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. He says, if God should open a door, if the chance for a spiritual conversation comes up, then more than anything else, I want you to pray that I will make the message eminently clear. And I find this, this phrase rather fascinating because Paul doesn't say, pray that I'll be clever, pray that I'll be impressive, pray that they'll, they'll like me. He says, just pray when that door opens and that opportunity is at hand that I'll make it clear. Some of you know what it's like to pray for an open door because you pray for them. And then all of a sudden, that thing swings wide open and you're suddenly aware that it's now or never. This might be my only shot. So when that time comes, Paul says, you've gotta be crystal clear. And speaking about Paul talking about being clear, he realizes that it is the Holy Spirit that works through us and makes us clear during those times when those doors open. So please don't put undue pressure upon yourself about what you can or cannot accomplish or about your oratory skills. Do you, do you remember Aaron, Moses' brothers, or, or Moses said, I am slow of speech? You remember that? He told God that that was his excuse for not being able to do what God asked him to do. And he let Aaron kind of be his, his spokesperson. Don't ever say that about yourself. God will use you if you allow him to use you. If you make yourself available and those doors open and you walk through, there will be things that will come out of your mouth that you didn't even know were inside of you, but God gave you the words to speak. Please don't ever let that scare you. The point is that you just need to be prepared and you need to allow the Holy Spirit to use you. The second thing you wanna be clear about in any gospel presentation is that no amount of human effort is ever gonna make anybody right with God Almighty. It, you can't. The theological term for this is substitutionary atonement. What that means is what Christ has done for us, no human being could ever do for themselves. We have to make that clear because it is counterintuitive to the culture in which we live. If you lined up 100 people who are not of faith in Christ, with no Christian background, 99 of them would say, if I'm ever gonna be right with God, then I'm gonna to have to do it myself. So when you are presenting the gospel to someone in, in a situation where God has opened a door for you, then let them first know that God's heart is filled with love and that his arms are open wide and that there is room at the cross for them. Secondly, make sure that they know that they cannot possibly save themselves. Nothing that they can do can save them. No penance paying, no acts of goodwill. It's about Christ having paid it all for them. We have to make that clear because if you leave that out, you're not making the message clear. And the final thing that you need to make eminently clear is that a decision has to be made. No one is going to drift into salvation. It's uh, you're either gonna opt in or you're gonna opt out. It's an act of your will. There is a choice in this equation because Christ has already paid your penance and when you ask him to pay your penance, then he will save you. That's what you wanna make clear. You ask him to forgive you of your sin and what he accomplished on the cross covers, atones, wipes away your sin. It's not about what kind of person you are or they are. It's not about their good deeds or their bad deeds. It's about whether or not Christ has forgiven you of your sin. Christ does for you what no human being could do for themselves. And you gotta step up and you gotta make a decision about that. Well, then Paul continues in verse five. He says, be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. This again refers to Paul's statement, pray that I might be able to proclaim the gospel message clearly. But now he's adding that proclaiming is not just with words. Proclaiming also comes through our actions. Notice that Paul is assuming that the people in the church in Colossae have relationships with outsiders with non-churched people. 
and he calls them to be wise in those relationships. As we go through our daily life, we are to be praying for opportunities to share our faith and to do so with clarity whenever we do it. And not just with our words, but through our actions. I read a story about a Christian couple who moved into a new neighborhood. They didn't know it at the time, but they moved right across the street from a self-proclaimed Satanist. This guy read from the Satanic Bible and he worshiped the devil. And that family realized when they discovered this what a crazy opportunity this was for them. They didn't quite know how to go about it, so they began to pray to God to show them what would it be like to love, what would it look like for us to love this particular neighbor. So they started loving this guy through their actions. They helped him with food. They let him borrow their car once. They even helped him find a job. And eventually, months later, they got around to talking about the deeper things of life and the realities of their faith in Jesus. And through it all, that Satanist got saved. He got baptized in water and he got baptized in the Holy Spirit. He became a follower of Christ. And later on, this guy said this. He said, obviously, when this couple moved in across the street from me, I didn't want them to be there. I wanted them to move away. But I decided I was just going to watch them. And here's a profound truth that I want to express to all of us today. We are all already talking about Jesus. But the question becomes, what is it that we're saying about him? For example, if this couple that moved in across the street from this Satanist did everything they could to avoid this guy, if they avoided talking with him or helping him or or sharing with him all, all the while, while he knew that they were followers of Jesus, what do you think was being conveyed or would have been conveyed to that man? I'll tell you what it is. I'll tell you what he and most non-believers think. They think if these Christians don't care about me, then the God they serve must not care about me either. That's it in a nutshell. It really is. It's just the way it is. We've gotta be careful how we live around people and how we react and how we respond to them. You see, if we refuse to talk to or to hang out with, or to serve, or to love, or to share around non-Christians, understand, we are telling these people about Jesus, but what we are telling them through what they're witnessing is that Jesus wouldn't talk to, or hang out with, or serve, or love, or share with them either. And that's a lie. And we're to blame for that, because of sometimes the way we approach those who are lost and who are different from us. We are always telling people about Jesus through our actions and attitudes. So again, the question becomes, what are we telling them? See, Paul's at the stage of life where I know he has seen evangelism done in some very improper and counterproductive ways. And I think we probably have all seen that at some point in our life. And it's like Paul is pleading here, look, we need to open doors, but God's got to open the doors. We got to make the message clear whenever that door opens, and we have to stop damaging the cause of Jesus Christ. Stop acting unwisely towards outsiders. Stop any obnoxious, overzealous, spiritually superiority kind of acting around those who desperately need Christ. Stop doing things that push people away from the very God that they need to come to know. Paul doesn't give them a list of do's and don'ts here. He simply pleads common sense. He says, listen, would you just be wise? Would you just be emotionally and relationally intelligent? Would you just be sensitive to them and their situation? Would you pray and would you listen before you start preaching? Would you exercise great care when you tell your story, when you tell God's story? and what he's done in your life. We gotta be wise in the way that we act, in the way that we interact with non-believers in this community if we ever hope for them to come from the outside and to come be a part of us on the inside. Well, then he gets a little bit more specific in verse six. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. He says, if the door opens up, and you can give a witness, I want your conversations to be full of grace. That's a great place to start. But then he says, seasoned with salt. 
That's a beautiful expression. He says, I'm asking that your conversations with outsiders be loving and winsome and grace-filled. I ask you to be attractive presenters of an attractive life-altering message of an attractive savior. He says, be gracious. Always err on the side of grace, but season your words with a little salt too. That means to add a little edge, a little flavor. Make sure that there's a little bit of a bite to it. You say to them, the subject that we're talking about today is the single most important subject you will ever discuss in your lifetime. And it will be hard sometimes for you to wrap your mind around it. But this is it. This is the entire ball game that we're talking about. And, and, and that's the edge part. That's the edge. That, that's the little salt. That is raising the ante just a little bit. Because you got people's attention. They're, they're going, really? And you say, yes. This is about your life. This is about your eternity. So if we need to take a few more minutes to get this right, I got all the time in the world, let's talk this through. Because this is the most important decision that you're ever gonna make. And High Point, can I just say this morning that every one of us is called to do this. Not a one of us is exempt. I don't care how young you are. I don't care how old you are. I don't care if you have Christian friends and non-Christian friends or one way or the other. We are all called to be ministers of the gospel. Throughout my years in ministry, I have to tell you, I have been shocked by the amount of times I have been asked by people in the church for me to come and to lead a relative or a friend or a work associate to someone, to to lead them to Christ. That's always perplexed me. And don't get me wrong, I'm happy to, to speak the gospel and to lead someone to Christ. But what makes you think that I've got to be involved in that process? There's nothing that says I have to be involved in that process. Can you see something? If it's gotten to that point where you're coming to me and saying, I want you to come and lead my friend or my sister or my uncle to the Lord, God has already opened that door for you to even be coming and talking to me. That door swang wide open for you and you chose not to walk through it. And when it opens, you need to walk through it boldly. And you need to cast aside that fear that we all have and follow through and lead them to Christ yourself. And that will do two things. It will bring you closer to that person than you've ever been before because you've just given them direction to the greatest thing that will ever happen in their life. And secondly, it will bring joy into your personal existence that you've never experienced before. And here's the deal about what I'm talking about here. Your friends, your family, your work associates will much better receive the truth from you, someone that they know that they have built a relationship, than they ever will some stranger who comes in from the outside and say, hey, I'm Pastor David, I'm here to lead you to the Lord. Can you get that? They wanna hear it from you. The reason they're asking is because you live a different kind of a life and they want what you have. You cannot become paralyzed in those moments. You must prepare to act on those opportunities. And that's precisely why we pray ahead of time for when those opportunities come that we will walk through the door and that we will do it well and we will express it in a way that is meaningful. My prayer is that we would be so firm in our faith that we could not stay silent about who Jesus is and about what he's done for us. Paul says, that's what I want you to pray about for me. And High Point, that's what I want you to pray about for yourselves and for each other and for this body of believers as a whole that we would pray for open doors that we would make the message clear once those doors open that we would be attractive and wise towards non-believers and then when we have that opportunity that our speech would be filled with grace seasoned with salt with that little bit of an edge and then leave it in God's hands. Because here's one other thing. Ultimately, it is his responsibility to save. You can't save anybody. You can just give them the news. They've got to make a decision. Liz, will you come forward or whoever we're gonna come and close this down? I wanna tell you a story about a man I used to work with. Let's just say in the years that I worked with Mike, I wasn't saved. I was deep into sin. And it showed by the way that I lived my life. And, and I was an influence 
in Mike's life, and sadly, my influence wasn't for Christ. In fact, the truth of the matter is that I introduced Mike to some sinful behavior, some sinful actions, and I knew that those things that I introduced him to grew in his life, even after we no longer worked together. One day I committed my heart to Jesus and he transformed my life and it, I wasn't the same anymore. And after, after several years, God had a calling on my life to go into ministry. Still scratch my head sometimes about that one. I didn't think I had what it took and maybe you still don't think I have what it took but it's just amazing to see what God can do in a person's life but I remained friends with Mike during that time we talk on the phone occasionally enough for him to know that I went to Bible college and that eventually I became a pastor at a church and one day I received a call from Mike he said hey man how you doing he said David I have cancer he said the doctors tell me I got about six months at the most to live and those words pierced my heart because I realized, barring a healing from God, that Mike was going to lose his life. It was an aggressive form of cancer. And though I knew that Mike knew of God, because I remember he told me once when he was a little boy, his parents took him to church, I knew that Mike wasn't right with God and his eternity would not be good. So I asked Mike if I could pray for him and he said yes. And I, I prayed over that phone line first asking God, to bring healing to his body. And then after that prayer, I realized that Mike needed more than just a physical healing. He needed salvation. He needed a savior. And that's when I presented the gospel of Jesus to him. I knew it was my responsibility at that moment to do so. You talk about a door opening wide. That door opened as big as the Grand Canyon and it was only for me at that moment. It was for no one else. It was for me. And I remember saying to him, Mike, I am not at all proud of the man that I used to be. The man that I once was. Or the way that I influenced your life because I influenced you in the wrong ways. But I am a changed man by the grace of God. And you can be changed too. I said, Mike, the truth is, you could be dead in a few weeks. And I know you've given thought about what happens after you die. It ain't game over, Mike. It isn't we're done and you go into the dirt and you're never seen again. You have a spirit and it's alive and it lives and it will live on. And then I explained to him the plan of salvation and how all that he needed to do was to receive Jesus and he could be certain of his eternal future if cancer got the best of them. And I led Mike to Jesus that day over the phone. And I thought it was so ironic that the man who once led Mike into sin was now given the opportunity to lead Mike to faith in Christ Jesus. And I'll never forget how gracious God was to me that day allowing me to lead Mike to the cross because I have grieved, had grieved over my influence in Mike's life for a long, long time. And now God was giving me the opportunity to lead him in a positive way to the most important decision of his life. Several months after that went by, I was hired to be the next senior pastor of High Point Assembly in Red Bluff, California. And since Mike lives in San Jose, I called him and invited him to come and be a part of the first Sunday that I was here as the new pastor. And when I called his cell phone, a woman answered. When I asked for Mike, she explained that he had passed away two days earlier. And though that was sad news, I lost a friend, I rejoiced inside because I knew that everything was well with Mike's soul. And I will be eternally grateful to my Heavenly Father for allowing me the opportunity to be the one who led Mike to Jesus. And can I just say to all of you this morning, when you lead someone to Christ, it really does almost more for you. It can't possibly do more for you. It does so much for you, just like it does 
for the person that you are leading to the Lord. There is a joy that comes with that, an excitement that comes from playing a part in someone's eternal salvation. If you've never experienced it before, you really need to. You see, once you play a part in that, you'll want to do it again. And you will look for open doors wherever you go. I pray that that is your heart's cry this morning. I pray that all of you have the capacity to look past your own life and the fact that you're secure in Christ Jesus and your heart is heavy or broken for those who are not secure in Christ Jesus. When you see that they have a need for a savior. You see, the last time I checked, the death rate in America is still 100%. Every one of us is going to die one day. And unless the Lord comes and raptures us before that day, we're gonna die. Every neighbor, every friend, every work associate, every relative you have will die. But we are the ones, we are the carriers of the message of hope, a message that can transform a life, that can, can alter someone's eternity. Don't you think it is worth a prayer every day to say, God, will you open a door for me today? And will you allow me to be clear in what I say? It's worth you reading and studying and, and challenging yourself. So if, that doors, if those doors open, you are ready to share the truth of Jesus Christ. It's worth it for you to get smarter about how to act more wisely towards outsiders, how to win their respect, how to win their love and attention, and more importantly, how you can love them as Christ would love them. To introduce someone to the greatest gift you could ever lead them to, an introduction to a God who loves them unconditionally, it's an incredible thing. And something that I pray you will all desire to experience and furthermore, that you would pray for those experiences to come. See, I, I, I fear that far too many Christians stay silent about their faith. Oh, you love the Lord. You're thankful for his goodness in your life, what he's done for you and your family. But for some reason, you never open your mouth. And you share the goodness of, of who God is and what he means and what he's done for you. When we are all commanded to do so, by Jesus. Will you all stand to your feet, please? In a moment, we're going to pray. And during this prayer, I'd like to ask you to pray that God would open some doors for you to walk through, to share your faith, to lead someone to faith in Christ Jesus. And I want you to understand something. Even when you pray for open doors and you walk through that door, and you share it clearly, they may still not accept Christ. It doesn't mean that you failed. It just means that they're not ready at that moment. And when they do find Christ, and they will, because all of what you said plants seeds down into their spirit that they can't let go of. And it will cause them to talk to other people, and it's almost like a chain effect, and you're a part of a chain link, and eventually that person will find Christ and you will have played a part in their salvation. Even though you weren't the one that brought them across the finish line, you just shared the goodness of God to them and it got them thinking and it got them moving in the right direction. And the reason that you even had that door open to you is because you've lived the kind of life in front of them that has made them ask you questions for that door to open. They've seen Christ in you, in other words. Maybe you don't lead them to Christ, but you simply invite them to come to church with you. You know they'll be given an opportunity to receive Jesus here in one of these services. The point is we are called to be active participants in sharing the good news. If God has transformed your life, you should be telling others about that transformation process. You should be praying for open doors and you should be praying to recognize those doors when they open and then you should walk boldly through them and allow the Holy Spirit to work in and through you. So let's pray this morning that God would use us this way, personally and corporately as a church. 
And if you're here today and you don't know Jesus yourself, or if you're watching online and you don't have a relationship with Christ, you can receive him during this prayer time. The Bible says to receive salvation, you must believe and confess. You must believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He is the only way to the Father. He came to this earth and he lived a sinless life and he died a horrific death and the blood that he shed on the cross of Calvary covers or atones or wipes away your sin. And all you need to do is say, Jesus, I believe in you. I believe you did all of this. I ask you to forgive me and he is faithful. He will cleanse you of all unrighteousness. God's spirit will now indwell you and you can start down a new path. The confession part is just, is just saying all that in your prayer. And you can become a believer in Christ and our hope is that as a church, we can come alongside of you and help you grow in your Christian faith. But if you're already a Christian, I want you to pray that you would be bold and that God would open doors for you this week and in the months and the years to come and that it would become a lifestyle for us. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. As I know everything that the Apostle Paul accomplished in the early New Testament church, the transformation of his own personal life from being a persecutor to a builder of the church. When I see all of the truth that he has written that was inspired by the Holy Spirit, I stand amazed and I think it's very easy for us to think, well, he was the Apostle Paul. I'm just David Blythe. But God, I pray that you wipe that from our minds. Each one of us are active agents of the cross. Each one of us has the capacity to open our mouth and share your goodness. And the truth is, with the Spirit of God indwelling us, when we open our mouths, things even come out that we did not plan to say. That's the way you work. But we'll never see that experience unless we step out in faith and start to open our mouth. So God, I pray for God-ordained encounters for our church body here, that you would open doors to people who maybe we've known our entire lifetime. Maybe it's new friends, maybe it's people we work with, maybe it's uh, neighbors, maybe it's family members, whatever, God, that you would open the doors and that we would walk through them and that we would not be afraid to share your goodness with them and that we would see them come to faith in Jesus Christ. And the joy we would receive from that, Father, would push us to do it even more. Lord, we know the time is short and there's a lot of world that needs to be saved. We look at this community of Red Bluff, Lord, and we see the percentages of those who are redeemed to those who know nothing about you. It's staggering. And God, if we all did this, there would be not enough room in the churches in this city to contain those who would come to know you. So I pray that we would be an active part of leading others to Christ. Pray that it would become a facet of our life that's just what we do, just what we do every day. And we're going to see victories, and we're going to come up against some, some difficulties. But that's not for us to determine, Father. We are being obedient to you, and that's who we are responsible to you, and that is you. And we want to be obedient in the way we live our lives. So, Father, I pray that you would help us to follow this commission and do what you've asked us to do, and to do it well, and to pray for opportunities so that we can do it well. For those who don't know you today, Father, that they would pray to you that they're a sinner that needs salvation, that you would forgive them of their sin, and that you would direct their lives, and you would draw them closer to you, Lord, and that they would become productive members of the body of Christ, and that they, too, would pray for open doors to lead their friends and family as well. That's how the kingdom of God is built. Let us all do our part in building the kingdom of God. And Lord, as we go our separate ways today, I pray that your Holy Spirit would go with us and direct our steps, the things we do, the places we go, the conversations we have, that they would be glorifying to you. They would be indicative coming from the life of a man or woman that's been changed by the love of God. And Father, as I always pray, I ask for open doors for us to share your goodness with others. And Father, give us the courage to walk through that door boldly and to know that you are there holding our hand through the entire time. And to remember 
that what we are sharing is the greatest gift that anybody could ever receive or that we could ever present. So use us this week, the weeks to come, the months to come, the years to come. Help us to fulfill that calling that you've placed on our lives to make disciples of all. I thank you for this time together. I thank you for your spirit. So sweet in this place today. Touch our lives and our hearts, Father. Drive us to do those things that you've asked us to do. And I pray it in the precious and holy name of Jesus. Amen and amen. Thank you for being here.